welcome to Superthink. Taking a walk in Portland saved my life. At our recent storytelling event, Superthink's Michelle Jones explained the group's mission to the live audience. Our mission is to facilitate a billion acts of radical community gratitude for stuff that matters. So we try to find members of our communities that are doing things that are making all of us better because of the work they're doing and share their stories. Today, we have three stories for you, each one a true tale of surprising gratitude. Tracy said, I know what we'll do for fun. We'll go stand in front of the Beaverton Library and give out free hugs. And I thought, there is nothing that I can think of that would be less fun. That's Brain Coach Brad with his story. But first, Christine Alexander could be heard for years on Portland's now defunct progressive talk radio station, KPOJ. She's a broadcaster, an entrepreneur, a journalist, and she's begun working on her college degree. Her story is about a time she was feeling down. But since she was able to take walks around her neighborhood, she stumbled upon a surprising reason to be happy again, an unexpected way to feel gratitude. Perhaps it didn't hurt that the neighborhood she had to walk around in was downtown Portland. Here's Christine. When I was first told or asked um, would I like to share a story at Superthank, I thought, oh my God, I don't know any stories. I can't tell a story. I don't have some miraculous story of my dog saving me from a frozen lake or uh, some, you know, sob cancer story, although I do have one of those. I didn't want to share that kind of story, and I couldn't think of what I wanted to share, and then all of a sudden, it dawned on me. Greco-Roman. So I'm going to take you back to 1984, Los Angeles, California. I had just moved there, hoping to be a star, ending up being a waiter, um, had a miraculous career as a maitre d', and I was in an acting class, and they brought in a guy to help the teacher with the improv classes, and his name was Tom Ballator. Tom has turned out to be one of my greatest, dearest friends. We've known each other for 30 years now. And he was a regular stand-up at uh, the Comedy Store on Sunset. And I was taking acting classes and doing a day job at the Beverly Center, which is the mega mall right smack dab in the middle of L.A. And um, Tom was, at first we were romantic. He was, he was handsome, he was thin but, but muscular, and he had a, a, a face that was angular but sweet. And he had this hair that was like, it was like a... It was like Elvis. It was kind of a pompadour, and I realized later that it was not on purpose. It was because he didn't wear a helmet, and he rode his motorcycle all over town. So he had this great pompadour of black hair going on, and, and um, I thought it was very cute. But we became steadfast friends. But while we were still in L.A., we came up with all these weird ideas um, uh, for performance art or a short film. He was also working as a waiter at the Cheesecake Factory. I don't know if any of you know the Cheesecake Factory, but um, if it was named today, it would be called the Cheesecake Depot. It was like 857 kinds of cheesecake and the, the waiters, you know, had to wear flair and all that wonderful stuff. And um, so we decided we wanted to make a short film and call it The Cheese 
factory. And remember, this is 1984. This is before artisanal cheeses. And, you know, you may be thinking, oh, gourmet, wonderful, a flight of cheese. No, this was Velveeta. This was deep fried cheese. This was filler all the way. So we had decided to make this short film. And the uniforms, of course, would have the cheese head hat. And the flair would say something like little pins with we cut the cheese, you know, things like that. So that was just one of our performance ideas. Um, Flash forward to 2014. Um, I was lonely. Really, really lonely. I just moved to downtown Portland. I've been in Oregon for about eight years, but I decided it was time to get out of the suburbs and move to downtown Portland. Um, I had just had a couple of really tough years. I got the cancer, got rid of that. My dog died, and my man left me. I kid you not. It was a horrible year and a half. So I'm making these changes. I'm moving to downtown Portland, and I'm so depressed. It's horrible. But, of course, you have to get out of your house every day, whether you're going to work or got to go to the store. So when I was forced to get off of the couch, even though every bone in my body wanted to stay curled up there with a bottle of wine, I would get out, and I would walk everywhere. I lived downtown. I could walk everywhere, and I loved it. Walking, taking a walk in Portland saved my life. So I am walking uh, back home from uh, school, and I'm walking through the Pearl, and I'm going toward Union Station, and I am on Flanders, and I'm rounding 9th Street, and I look around, and I see that what is, oh, it's first Thursday. All the gallery doors are propped open. There are a lot more people on the street. They look a little more sparkly than usual. And um, so I'm walking down, and uh, it was a hot day. It was late summer, uh, late early, after, early evening, late afternoon, and I hate the heat. I left Tucson, Arizona because I hate the heat. And I moved to the Northwest because I love the cold. So I, I carry my Oriental paper uh, um, parasol in the summer and so I'm walking down the street feeling feeling good because once I'm in the street and I'm walking around I actually start finding myself smiling saying hello to strangers forgetting how miserable I am for a few minutes and it's great and as I turn this corner on 9th street I look over and I look up and I see these two guys standing on the roof of the Blackfish Gallery. It's a one-story building, and they're up there, and they're, they're all bellies and beards. One guy is shirtless, proudly, with his beard and his beer, and they're standing up there and just talking, and I, and I guess it's just what you do in Portland. I was compelled to speak to them. So I hollered up, and I said, hey, are you guys doing some kind of performance art or something? And they both stopped and looked down at me, And uh, they said, no, but we could. (laughs) What would you like to see? (laughs) And it was as though, looking back, I can see my synapse firing. All of a sudden, my brain took me back 30 years and brought me forward again. And I yelled up at them, Greco-Roman! And they, there was this fat quizzical pause 
for a split second, and then simultaneously, as though they both understood at exactly the same moment, they lunged at each other, put their arms out, and started wrestling and grappling with each other and growling. And, and they said, you know, and at one point it looked more like a bear hug than a takedown, but that was okay. And then they both stopped at the same time, and they looked down at me with this look on their face like, we good? And so then we both just laughed hysterically, and I continued my walk home. So the freaky thing is, 30 years ago, my friend Tom and I had a plan. We would go to the Beverly Center, the big mall in L.A. I mentioned to you, but we would go there with a blue mat dressed in wrestling leotard onesies. (laughs) We would throw our mat down, center court, and start Greco-Roman. And this was our idea of performance art. Of course, at the time, we thought it was hilarious because we were comedic geniuses. But it was our idea of performance art. You know, these two random people wrestling in the middle of the mall. And when I say wrestling, think Olympics. That's Greco-Roman, not WWF, okay? We're we're purists here. So um, what it came down to was that I realized that although I thought I was so lonely, the love was all around me. That, my best friend was right there with me. (laughs) And he heard three strangers. Three strangers shared a moment. So it was a surprise, and I am so grateful for it because those wrestlers pop into my mind all the time and they give me a huge smile. Every time I pass the Blackfish Gallery, I'm looking for my wrestlers. I still don't know who these guys are, but they are so dear to me. And I love them so much for reminding me that things like that don't go away. We share these things. Portland is that kind of city. So thank you for letting me share my story, and thank you for letting me live in Portland. Thanks to Christine Alexander for sharing her story. I'm Eric Klein. You're listening to Super Thanks online at superthank.org. Our next live event is coming up on May 12th. Check out our website for details. We'd love to see you there. These days, Superthank's Jefferson Smith is hosting the live events. Last go-around, he collected notes from the audience about a time they felt surprise, gratitude. Tell us about a time you felt gratitude that might surprise people. When my ex-husband left the computer history not clean, I don't have to go on. I think I just... (laughs) Yeah, I really didn't, actually. Is everything on here? You already know. Uh, I found sexsearch.com, adultfriendfinder.com. That's a bummer. That one's a bummer. That's just not like looking at the stuff. That's like finding the stuff. Uh, Craigslist, casual personal ads up. Thank you for validating my intuition. That was the gratitude. You see? Surprising gratitude. That's the spirit right there. So... While that's not necessarily the kind of gratitude we're going for at Superthank, it wasn't too far off. What I mean is that gratitude is not always easy. For some of us, expressing it, especially in the tough times, is not our default position. And we need help from the people in our lives to get us there, to remind us how it's done. Our next story is told by Brad Pendergraft. He is grateful for a friend who's always pushing him way outside his comfort zone. Here's Brad.
Thank you. Several years ago, the summer after my wife Nora and I met our friends Tracy and Lou and Pat for the first time, the five of us decided that we would take our relationship to the next level, that we would spend a whole day together with each one of us picking something for the five of us to do that would be fun. The first thing we did was we started cutting out pictures from magazines and sentences and sayings, and then Pat and Lou led us through a, a process of a vision board, turning the collages into visions, and it was very cool and very powerful. And then it was my friend Tracy's turn, and Tracy said, I know what we'll do for fun. We'll go stand in front of the Beaverton Library and give out free hugs. And I thought, there is nothing that I can think of that would be less fun. (laughs) I grew up in a family that was not very physically affectionate, especially for the men. And although I'd come a long way at that point, and I was comfortable hugging my friends and people I was really close to, but when I thought about the idea of walking up to a complete stranger who was just going about their business and offering to give them a hug, I got the total heebie-jeebies. <laughs> but I looked at Tracy, and she had this huge smile on her face, and I looked around at my group of friends, and I mustered up all the enthusiasm I could, and I said, oh, okay, uh, I'm in. And an hour later, there I was, in front of the Beaverton Library, walking up to my first, uh, let's just say, to the first person. (laughs) And he was this elderly guy, probably in his 80s, and he was just walking with his books into the Beaverton Library. And I said, hi, would you like a free hug? (laughs) And there's no way you could have told which one of us was more uncomfortable. He said, "Uh, no, I'm good. (laughs) But lots of people did take the free hugs, and I got more and more comfortable as the day went on, and until at the end of the day, Tracy had this big whiteboard where she was having people write the things they were grateful for, and I was standing there next to a, a, a Hispanic woman, a mother, who was watching her four- or five-year-old daughter who was scrawling something that she was grateful for on the board. And the little girl was just come from the park. She was all dirty. She was wearing these overalls, and she was scrawling something about her cat. And the mother looks over to me, and she said, you know, I think I'll take that free hug after all now. And... When I hugged her, it felt really good. The next year, Tracy invited us to the most unusual birthday party ever. The instructions were really clear. No presents for Tracy, but that all her friends were asked to to stockpile bubble wrap. And for weeks. So bubble wrap underneath the stairs and bubble wrap in the spare room... And on the night of the party, we all showed up with these huge piles of bubble wrap and duct tape and scissors, because those were the instructions. And it turned out we were making bubble wrap beds for the homeless. 
I didn't even know what those were, but there I was on my hands and knees cutting up bubble wrap and tying it together with duct tape with people that I knew and friends of Tracy that I'd never met before and making these very comfortable, very lightweight beds for the homeless. After the first one I made, I laid down on it, and I I thought, wow, this is actually really comfortable. I could fall asleep right now. But I I didn't get to. They they made me keep making the beds. and, And by the end of the night, we had this huge pile of beds, 10 by 10 or more, all these beds. But there was... There were no candles for Tracy, no presents, no birthday cake, just bubble wrap beds for the homeless. Now, at the end of the night, there was a bubble wrap bed snowstorm because we all went to the second floor and we threw the beds off to get them down into a pickup truck down there. And so all, everybody was throwing the beds at the same time and they were flying and hitting each other and the, the duct tape was glistening in the streetlights. Everybody was laughing and, and I looked over at Tracy, and she had this huge smile on her face. I thought, wait a minute, I know that smile. <laughs> this last Christmas, Tracy gave all her friends very unusual presents. She opened up accounts in our names for microloan organizations, Kiva and Kiva Zip and others like that, and then she funded them. So that what we got to do was to decide who would get the loans, who small business people or wannabe small business people all around the world, who they would get, who, who would get these loans. So the five of us friends, again, got together to do this together at the same time. And so we were reading these bios of people like Petroba who, in Kenya, who's been keeping just a couple of dairy cows for the last seven years, and she wanted a loan to get another dairy cow. Or Lucy, who was a widowed mother of four, who's been cooking for her neighbors, and now she wanted to turn it into a catering business. And we read all these bios, and we decided together, and we loaned out all the money. But in the days and weeks to follow, I couldn't stop going back and looking at all of the the bios, the people we'd loaned to, and the, and the updates they were sending, and also all the other people who were seeking loans. And that's when I had a surprising realization. Tracy's gifts, Tracy's birthday parties, Tracy's idea of fun, it's not just unusual. I realized it was sneaky. <laughs> it was subversive. It gets inside of you and doesn't go away. Aristotle says that the true friend is one who makes you into a better person. And thanks to Tracy, if somebody, don't do this, by the way, but if somebody were to write free hugs on a sign right now <laughs> and hand it to me, I'd actually go right outside on Burnside, and I'd be, I'd be cool. But yeah, this is fun. Thanks to Tracy... After we had loaned out all the money that she had given, I couldn't stop, and so I opened another account, and we loaned out more money. And thanks to Tracy's latest passion, which is an organization called Operation Underground Railroad, it's an organization that is dedicated to sting operations to break up sex slavery uh, rings around the world. 
And recently, I received a message from them saying, Brad Pendergraft, thanks to your donation, 29 women have been freed from sex slavery in a particular sting that they had done. And the youngest was 13 years old. And I thought, no, not thanks to your donation. Thanks to Tracy. And the realization of her impact on me was so strong that recently I was really shocked and surprised in a conversation when Tracy said, you know, sometimes I feel like I walk lightly on the earth, like, like I'm not having a lasting impact. And I had this moment of sadness in the, in the realization of how hard it is sometimes for us to be aware of the impact we have on our friends you know, and that how easy it is to miss the seismic changes that, that comes from being a true friend. And so I got the opportunity to speak tonight, and it was easy for me. I chose Tracy. And so because she's in the audience, I'd like to say just one more time, thanks to Tracy. Thank you. She's right there. If you don't recognize her, she's the one crying. You can't spot her? She's the one. How many we say, we'll all say thanks, Tracy, in the count of three. One, two, three. Thanks, Tracy. That was awesome. Dry your tears. Brad Pendergraft is the founder and clinical director at Lifetime Optimization, Inc. Up next on Super Thank... Tina Hart thanks the friend who showed her how to feel truly free, even though it might have seemed like they were both trapped in the middle of nowhere. So, I have an alter ego. I have an alter ego as a clown named Pixie Stick. And if anyone had told me that I would have an alter ego as a clown named Pixie Stick ten years ago, I would have laughed in your face. So let me back up. In 2008, I moved to Vermilion, South Dakota. And for many people, this move would be unremarkable. But for me, as a lifelong East Coaster, South Dakota was on my very short list of places that I never had any intention of living in. And I got there because I had just graduated college, the economy was trashed, and my then-boyfriend was currently living in Vermilion, finishing his last year of grad school. Now, none of those things actually would have gotten me out there, but John, my boyfriend had a friend named Jackie, and she worked at the school's Center for Academic Engagement. And she said she had two AmeriCorps positions uh, that would be open for one year at the school, and I'd be helping to do volunteerism and service learning, and all of that sounded interesting. Plus, I really needed a good resume builder, and I had no other options. So I packed my bags, and I moved out to the middle of the country. And when I showed up to Vermilion, some of my worst fears seemed to be coming true. Now, Vermilion is a town of roughly 10,000 people, mostly associated with the college, and it's about nine square miles. And when we pulled in, all I could think was it looked like this tiny little island floating among seas of cornfields that just stretched in every single direction. The little main street was small. There's no mall. There's no Target. There's just a handful of these little shops 
And I kid you not, as we drove in, I watched a tumbleweed dance across the road. And I thought, what the heck am I doing here? It was September, but the chill was already in the air. And to me, the whole place sort of felt gloomy and gray and very, very flat. So my first day of work was a Friday morning, 8 a.m. And I showed up and I found my computer and I log into my email and I get all settled and, and I wait for my boss. And I wait and I wait. And then suddenly, at 8.40, this young woman in her late 20s comes flying in, coat unbuttoned, hair slightly disheveled, bags in hand, and puts her hand out, says, Hi, my name is Jackie. And I thought, huh. And she apologizes and says, Look, I was at work till 10 p.m. last night. I was writing these, uh, these recommendation letters for students for this, this program abroad, and I just, I just had to finish some things up before coming in. And I didn't know quite what to think, but she seemed really friendly and I was sort of desperate for friends, so we decided, decided I should get along with her. And so I soon started hanging out with Jackie here and there, and I started to notice something. Everywhere we went, whether it was a formal work event or just down the road to Dairy Queen, which happened very often, uh, everyone would come up to her all the time. She seemed to know everyone in the town. People would come and share stories of accomplishment. They would thank her for volunteering at the community garden, or they'd come up and talk to her about their plans for the weekend. Actually, it was pretty rare that we could go anywhere where someone wasn't interrupting us. And that to me was really interesting because I knew Jackie had only been in Vermilion for a few years. And she'd obviously worked really hard to build this following and, and create this community with the folks around her. And I was impressed. So we soon started hanging out on a pretty regular basis, generally over Bud Light and Wings, which is staple food in Vermilion, South Dakota. And, uh, and as we hung out, I learned some other things about Jackie. She, uh, she read the paper, the little local Vermilion paper, every single day. And she would take note of people who, uh, who had just had a baby or who had just lost a loved one. And she would send them cards or letters, just letting them know that she cared. She spent money, often money she didn't have, on family, friends, acquaintances, anyone who was really asking or who needed it or had a particularly wonderful cause. And she spent more hours than anyone I've ever met at lunch dates with students, with colleagues from the university, with people she'd met walking down the street just to get to know them better. Now, I know a lot of people who volunteer, and, and they're all wonderful people, but the thing that was interesting to me about Jackie was that she volunteered both formally, you know, on the weekends, at night, with, with organizations, and informally in the community. To her, it was basically like a second job. So Jackie soon took me under her wing, and I found myself soon also volunteering at the community garden or, you know, the weekly dinners that the town hosted, and somehow Vermilion started turning into this friendly, pleasant Midwest town, not so much the conservative, scary island that I first thought it was. And it was about this time, maybe four months since I'd been there, that Jackie introduced me to Starburst. Now, Starburst is Jackie's alter ego as a clown. And Starburst, in fact, is very well known in Vermilion. Both kids and adults alike, they love Starburst. They get very excited when, when she comes out. And, uh, and when Jackie told me that she was a clown, to be quite honest, I thought of a lot of things, and none of them were good. They were mostly scary clown movies and popping balloons and screaming children, and I thought the whole thing was sort of nuts. But she slowed down and explained, no, she's actually a caring clown. And this is a clown that does uh, like nonprofit and volunteering and, and nice 
nicer things. So she still has a, a full clown outfit, but her face makeup isn't the, the creepy full clown makeup. It's a little more subtle, a little friendlier. So while Jackie volunteers a lot in the community uh, as a clown, she, um, or I should say Starburst, I suppose, um, she goes to the New Year's Eve parties and the block parties. She spends most of her time in the hospital. And she goes in and she goes to bring cheer to both kids and adults alike. So it's folks getting ready to go into surgery or it's adults that have just been diagnosed with cancer and are trying to process that or kids that are stuck in the hospital on their birthday. And, and she does this because she wants to help distract them from this, this tough situation that she's in. And as she started telling me some of these stories, I said the words that I, I never thought I would ever say, which were, can I be a caring clown? <laughs> so the answer, of course, is yes, of course, let me help you do that. And so she sent me to her teacher, which lived 45 minutes away, and, and this teacher was an older, very kind woman, very uh, strictly business about clowning. She was very serious about it. And she taught me a lot of things. So she taught me how to smile as a clown because actually when, you, when you're a clown, you're not supposed to show your teeth. So you just kind of smile just like that. And, uh, and she taught me where I could go get my arm pricked uh, to get my tuberculosis test so I could be cleared to go to the hospital. And she taught me how to apply my makeup so I didn't look creepy and scare the bejesus out of people as a clown, which actually is kind of hard to do. And so once I went through all of that and, and I got, you know, all the procedures that I had to go through to get into the hospital, I got to pick my name. And I picked Pixie Stick because as a kid, I adored those little sticks of sugar that just makes kids kind of crazy. And I thought that was a pretty appropriate name for a clown. So my first time at the hospital, I drive up and I get out. I walk to the lobby. I head up the elevator and I'm feeling pretty good. And, and the elevator opens and I'm, I'm looking down this hallway and I'm walking down, and there's these rooms where these beeping noises are coming and nurses that are flying by and white walls and machinery. And suddenly I'm feeling a little bit uneasy. And I'm thinking, I look ridiculous. What am I doing here? And so I sort of muster up, and I, I go to the first room I'm going to go to, and, and I'm told that it's a woman who's preparing to have brain surgery. And so I, I knock on the door, and I kind of peer in, and the room is very, very quiet. And the chair, this green chair that you're supposed to have family and friends visit you and sit in while they're there, the chair is sort of tucked back in the corner, and it's empty, and the walls are white, and they're bare, and there is literally just a single vase with yellow flowers sitting on the nightstand next to this woman's bed. And so I, I, I see her sort of beckon me in, and, and I walk in, and, uh, and as I walk in, I notice she's in her 40s or 50s. She's not very old, and she's propped up on some pillows on the bed. And as I walk in, this, this smell, this antiseptic smell, fills my nostrils, and I honestly just really wanted to turn around and leave. But that's not why I was there, and so I sort of mustered up, and I smiled, and I walked in, and I started talking. I talked about anything I could possibly think of that had nothing to do with the hospital. So I talked about the weather, and I talked about football, and I talked about country music, of which I know nothing about, and I just tried to talk. And to be honest, I felt awkward really the whole time. And so after about 20 minutes, I sort of awkwardly stood up and mumbled about leaving and shuffled my way towards the door. And as I walked, I heard her call out, thank you. Thank you for spending some time with me today. I'm really scared. And you just took my mind off that for a bit. 
so thank you. And, and then I realized why I was supposed to be there. And I went back several more times before I eventually moved out here to Portland. And so today I just want to say thank you to Jackie for teaching me what it means to be involved in your community and to truly love your community. And I know that I'm not the only one that she has impacted to do good. I know countless others who are now part of nonprofits who volunteer regularly and a handful of others who have now become caring clowns. Jackie's actions, whether it's Jackie or Starburst, obviously had a profound effect on Vermilion, but it's the inspiration that she gave to all of us that she interacted with that meant that that good could be translated out of just this small city in South Dakota and spread all across the country and, dare I say, the world. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines love in lots of different ways, but my favorite is an unselfish, loyal, and benevolent concern for the good of others. And I think if we loved our community just a little more like that, we'd be making the world a pretty incredible place. Thank you. Thanks to Tina Hart for sharing her story. That's it for this episode of Super Thank. You listen to the whole thing. So you're exactly the kind of person we need to ask a favor. We could use your help reviewing and rating us on iTunes so someone new can stumble on these stories and get into the habit of expressing more gratitude. Go to the iTunes, subscribe to this podcast, write a review of this podcast, and tell your friends about the podcast. Like Superthink on Facebook. Special thanks to everyone who made this show possible, including all of the volunteers at Superthink. Everyone who has shared a story at our live events in the past, in the present, and in the future. And the composer of this music, the music you're listening to right now on this show, Poddington Bear. Thank you, Poddington Bear, for the music. I'm Eric Klein. Thank you for listening.